This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. It's been a little more than two weeks since the first COVID-19 vaccine went into the arm of a Hawaii resident, a frontline health care worker. That's the first group to receive the vaccines, but you might be wondering when it's going to be your turn. Well, that depends. Each state has come up with its own distribution plan, coordinating with federal groups from the Centers for Disease Control to the Department of Health and Human Services. Eric Hargan is the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. He oversees vaccine distribution plans for the department's ninth region, which includes Hawaii. He spoke with the conversation's Harrison Patino about the latest on the national vaccination program. We really allow the states to set their own plans for allocation of the vaccine and the distribution. So we have asked the states for plans. Hawaii has submitted its plan. And we then work with our private sector partners to get the vaccine out there. So whether it's the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, with regard to skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, assisted living, we work with pharmacies to get that into those institutions, both to the residents and the staff. And we work with distributors like UPS and FedEx for the other places that the states have identified as locales where we should deliver the vaccine. So we look to the states to decide for themselves what's the rational place for the vaccines to be delivered to and distributed from. And then the states go through the allocation, you know, but the prioritization of which population gets it. We've given recommendations through CDC of factors that a state can consider in terms of what they should be looking at, whether it's different levels of the elderly, medically frail, frontline workers, healthcare workers, and so on, to decide for themselves what order they should do. And the states are really following their own plans here in terms of deciding which groups that they want to prioritize. What's your sense of a timeline in terms of a widespread public availability of vaccines? We are going to be hitting, in accordance with our initial plans, we're going to be going with 20 million allocated from the federal government uh, by the end of December, really coming up upon us, then another 30 million people will be able to be vaccinated by the end of January on current trend, and then another 50 million people vaccinated by the end of February, again on current plan. You know, there can always be hiccups along the way, issues with manufacturing, issues with distribution, kinks in the supply chain, those kind of things. But, you know, so far so good. We've been able to hit those numbers pretty well with the companies being able to manufacture and get those doses out. So that's the current plan right now in terms of the overall number. So we would hit 100 million vaccinated by the end of February on current plan and trend. Now, logistically speaking, are there any particular challenges to vaccine distribution here in Hawaii? Well, you know, the Pfizer vaccine, it requires fairly cold storage. So you're looking at many cases where you have not as many locations that are able to keep it cold as long. Now, we have got workarounds around that, and Pfizer's prepared these interesting packs that are sort of centered around dry ice, which is not, you know, an unknown technology to be able to keep the vaccine cold. So that has worked well so far. You know, we anticipate that places that are able to keep the vaccine cold will be able to do that. When you have areas that are either rural, remote, or have difficult areas logistically, there may present more challenges to people who want to get it into arms. And we've seen in that case, sometimes people opt to go with the Moderna vaccine, which doesn't require as cold storage as uh, the Pfizer vaccine. Now, we've seen that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are the two vaccines that have been approved for U.S. distribution. Can we expect any other vaccines to join the market anytime soon? Well, we have two more vaccines in late-stage clinical trials, AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So those two are in late-stage clinical trials. We have others that Operation Warp Speed has also sort of been working with that are also uh, working on clinical trials for their vaccines as well. I'm on the board of Operation Warp Speed, and we have seen, obviously, incredible progress on the two vaccines that have been already authorized by FDA. And, you know, there could be potential that there would be upside surprises. That would be great for those two vaccines that are in late-stage clinical trials to also get authorized by FDA. I think we have to wait and see on those issues, whether we're going to get better data in maybe January that would allow the FDA to make that evaluation. So I think that's kind of a wait and see issue right now. But, you know, I think it's possible we would get one of the vaccines that are in late-stage clinical trials that would be able to get a lot of information into the FDA in January. But that's sort of a fingers-crossed moment.
Now, to what extent do you think this growing skepticism of vaccines, particularly the COVID-19 vaccine, is going to play in mass vaccination efforts in the months and years to come? Is there any sort of education plan in place? We have been working on that. We've had a vaccination confidence campaign that's been more spearheaded by CDC, uh, which is, you know, does a lot of the communications on public health for us at the department. That's terribly important. I mean, it's really getting the word out. I'll just say for myself, I intend to get the vaccine as soon as I can. I intend for my family to get vaccinated with these vaccines as soon as they can. You know, I've seen the data myself. We've got very large vaccine trials that are among the largest we've conducted, period, in history. And there's been a lot of oversight. I think people have not fully understood how and why these vaccines were available more quickly. A lot of it is really just innovations and contracting. It's really the fact that we're doing R&D and manufacturing and distribution systems all at the same time, rather than doing them in order the way we normally would. So normally we'd do R&D, then we would do manufacturing, build out, then we do distribution, but we're doing all at the same time, which saves a lot of time at the end. That's why we're able to move from authorization to distribution over a weekend. Other areas are committees. We had the committees instead of waiting four, six, or more months for the committees to meet for recommending. We told them this is a national emergency. When you have had time to look at the data, tell us your answer. We're not going to wait six months for your regularly scheduled meeting. You should probably have the meeting now when you've had chance to intelligently look at the data. And they did. And that saved a lot of time. So I think people don't realize that months of time was taken off this, but without any sacrifice of safety whatsoever. I've talked to the clinical trial investigators. One of them said, this is the most oversight he's ever had over vaccine trials, because we are working very closely with the companies and getting the data as soon as we can to analyze it. Many of these clinical trials are taking place on federal clinical sites. So we have really direct access to the data. And we have, as I say, historically large trials. I mean, at this point, with those two vaccines, we've had over 70,000 people participating in these trials for these first two vaccines. Those are both really large trials. We cast the net really wide demographically, by age, by ethnicity, geographically, to be able to make sure we had as many different kinds of people represented in these trials so there wouldn't be any kind of unusual hiccup and we wouldn't have anything appear as we distributed these vaccines in our millions. So, so far, so good. Now, just on one final note here, last week, Hawaii uh, DOH Direct Libby Char said that some federally allocated doses of the COVID-19 vaccine were delayed because of Operation Warp Speed. Now, not speaking to that specifically, but for you, is there any worry in the future that federal and state entities might be working at cross-purposes here in terms of creating their own plan and execution and distribution of the vaccine? I'm hopeful any of those kind of issues we need to know about to clear up as soon as we possibly can. That's the whole promise of Warp Speed is that we move as quickly as we can and we cut through a lot of the bureaucracy that has inhibited past efforts at getting vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics out into the public. This is a national emergency. The the lockdowns, the other public health measures are not cost-free. We need to put an end to this pandemic and go back to our normal lives as soon as we possibly can. So if there is any hitch in that, I hope Hawaii is reaching out as soon as possible to us. The door is always open. The phone is always on, available for people to call in, email, write, who are at the state level, who want to interact with us to make sure we don't have any hitches in this area. I've not heard about any issues with Hawaii not getting vaccines as soon as possible. And to the extent that we can try to unstick this, happy to with us and with our distribution partners, you know, UPS, FedEx, CBS, Walgreens, and others who are helping us get the material out as soon as we can. And, you know, I've been visiting people in rural and remote areas. That's my background. Myself is in rural healthcare and family point of view. So I'm always interested to hear about usual circumstances that might sort of throw kinks into our distribution system. It is the most obviously logistically challenging part of this whole thing, which is to get everyone in the United States vaccinated who wants to be vaccinated can be vaccinated. And so we really want to achieve that. I know we do, and I know the department, as things go on throughout the course of the year, is going to want to do that as soon as possible and put an end to this successfully. So just want to encourage anyone who has a problem with that, reach out immediately. We want to solve these problems as soon as we possibly can at the federal level. That was Eric Hargan, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, speaking with the conversation's Harrison Patino on the ongoing efforts at the state and federal levels to roll out the vaccine to the American public.
Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort, wishing everyone health and happiness in 2021, featuring dining by Chef Jonathan Mizukami, previously with the French Laundry in Napa Valley and other restaurants across the globe. KahalaResort.com. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts. And it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The new exhibition, Okalani, features works by Native Hawaiian artists Sean K.L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele through January 3rd. HonoluluMuseum.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your movie knowledge. Specifically, we're highlighting the James Bond film Die Another Day, which is the only one in the franchise where Hawaii gets screen time. Moviegoers were treated to an intense chase sequence featuring a big wave surfing stunt that was filmed at the Maui break known as Jaws. The cast included actor Pierce Brosnan as the iconic MI6 agent who attempts to flesh out a mole in British intelligence. John Cleese played Q, a quartermaster heading the R&D division of the British Secret Service. The plot revolved around one of author Ian Fleming's classic villains, a British diamond mogul who schemes to start a war between North and South Korea. For today's quiz... Can you tell us the fictional name of the Bond girl who teams up with 007 in the 2002 blockbuster? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nairithawaii.com. We are joined this morning by Dr. Kathy Kozak, host of The Body Show and also a physician at Hawaii Pacific Health. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. How are you? So you have been there in a hospital setting, and they are rolling out these vaccines to our folks on the front line. So what's been your experience? Well, I have to say everybody was really excited when we heard the vaccine was coming, mainly because there are a lot of colleagues that I have who are actively taking care of COVID positive patients in the ICU, on the hospital floors. And there's those of us that are in the clinic that are seeing people come in. And the biggest concern is the asymptomatic folks. Those who come in who don't have any symptoms at all, maybe they're coming in for a different diagnosis, but they're actually positive. And so they can spread the virus. And as healthcare providers, it's our responsibility to protect the public. So we certainly don't want to be the source of someone else getting an infection, either from ourselves or from our offices. And we saw the, the priority list is healthcare professionals first. Um, I did happen to talk to the, uh, I think, the deputy administrator over at Kaiser the other week, and I asked him if he was in line. He said, well, I have to wait my turn because it's the folks in the ward, uh, you know, the nurses, the folks that are doing the cleaning uh, for those high-risk areas in the hospital. They're first. 
Absolutely. Well, and when you think about it, we want them to be first because what we don't want to see is spread of the virus in a hospital facility or even if it's the housekeepers who are cleaning up those rooms and then they bring it home to their family. So we want to make sure that we're protecting those who at all would come in contact with anyone who might be infected with coronavirus. I don't know if you've come across a COVID-19 patient in your care. Several times. And the majority of the times that I've seen them, we didn't think that's what it was. And so, you know, we sent them for testing and they said, I really don't feel that bad. I'm here for my whatever checkup or go over my labs. And within a few days, we find out they're positive. Now, in our offices, we're supposed to be wearing masks. We are wearing gloves when we touch patient, patients. We have eye protection on. And we're also trying to keep six feet of distance as much as possible, even in an exam room, so that we limit our exposure, protect Potentially, we would give it to the patient, although we haven't had any cases of the physicians giving it to patients thus far. But we don't want the patients to give it to us, and then I go see another patient in another room or something of that sort. So I actually have had several cases of people who came in, did not have symptoms I thought was coronavirus, and their test comes back and they're positive. It is a concern. And so what's been the rollout process at your facility? We know there was a, a lot of fanfare when the first vaccine started to to roll out at the different hospitals across the state. Um, what was it like at, at uh, HBH? Well, I have to give the administrative staff a lot of credit. They may not be the first ones in line to get the shot, but they certainly have tried to craft a process which really had to respond to when the shots came in, what day they came in, how many came in, and setting up a separate vaccination site. So, you know, I know that all the facilities across the state, and in fact, throughout the U.S., struggled with this sudden implementation, but the fact that you had to be able to change very quickly and adapt, depending on how many vaccinations you received, and also the fact that, you know, with the shots, they can't be kept out of the freezer or either the Pfizer shot with the extremely cold freezer or even the Moderna shot. They can't be kept out for very long. You have to be able to administer those shots quickly. So you need to make sure you have the adaptability to have the right number of people getting the shot, schedule appointments, keep people socially distanced during those appointments, and also make sure that the right people are getting it the first time. And do you know which shot you got? I got the Pfizer shot about two weeks ago, and so I'm due for my second dose in about a week. And then uh, what have you been hearing just from your colleagues about maybe any concerns that they may have had about the safety of the vaccine? You know, there's a lot of questions about long-term safety. I think in general, most vaccinations, if you're going to have a side effect, it is pretty immediate, and we don't see a lot of side effects. The usual sort of effects that people may have, their arm might be sore, they might have a slight body ache or low-grade temperature, that could happen within the first day or so. Some of the studies have shown that it's the second shot that actually has more side effects, and that kind of makes sense. You know, your first shot, your body says, oh, this is different, mild symptoms. Your second shot, your body should recognize. That's your booster. So you, you should have more side effects. You almost want to have more side effects from that shot. The long-term issues, really, we can't resolve that. There are certain unknowns in science, and because the shot's only been available for the last few months, we can't really say what's going to happen two years from now. It's just unknown. But I do know that as, as healthcare providers, we have a responsibility to protect the public. And if doing that includes getting a vaccination that may have long-term unknown effects, but short-term could protect the public and ourselves, then that's something we should step up and do. And I saw a lot of folks who previously had said, you know, I'm not sure if I'll get it. They stepped up because they realized this pandemic is not going to go away unless all of us work together to do it. I'll tell patients, you know, a lot of them have said, oh, you're first in line. Did you get the shot? And I said, yes, I did. And the reason I did is because not only will it protect me, but it will also protect you. And in addition, it will allow more healthcare providers to step up should we see a surge like we've seen in other states. There are plans that if the hospitals get overwhelmed, a lot of the doctors who normally would not work in the hospital are going to step up and start doing that. And we've all been retrained and are set and ready to do it. So we need to make sure that we're protecting not just ourselves and our loved ones, but also the public. We're doing it for the public. And the doctors are the best ones to say, are there side effects? None of my colleagues thus far have had any serious side effects that required reporting to any registry or federal body. So far, everyone has been fine. And do you know what percentage of the hospital um, staff has gotten the vaccine already? 
Well, it's hard to say. I know as of about a week ago, we had given out over two and a half, maybe 3,000 doses already. So I know that more vaccinations are coming in. They're scheduling appointments to make sure that people have access. And once we get the healthcare providers vaccinated, then we have to start looking at those people who are in care homes. And we also have to look at some of the other high-risk elderly patients as well. And the vaccine isn't mandatory. You know, it is under the emergency you know, authorization. But I know when I was uh, talking with the Hawaii Nurses Association, you know, and, and I believe they, they are going through some contract negotiations uh, with HPH, but they have said, you know, we've recommended to our members that they get vaccinated because it's to protect each other. Absolutely. And it's also to protect the patients. You know, I do think that for a lot of folks who might be sort of on the fence or wondering, should I get it or should I not? It's not just about protecting yourself. It's also about protecting other people as well. A lot of folks might live in households that have elderly parents, or they might be in situations where they may live on their own, but they interact regularly with people who have immunocompromised situations for themselves. So it's not just a matter of protecting yourself, it's doing so to protect everyone else as well. Kaiser, I know, had to bring in special freezers to keep the Pfizer vaccine ultra cold. Did uh, HPH do the same? Do you know? Well, everybody tried to get a good cold chain is what we call it. So we wanted to make sure that there wasn't any indication that the vaccine would be defrosted prematurely. Once it is thawed, you have five days to administer it. And so the good news is that it's not you're not putting a minus 70 degree vaccination in your arm for anybody who thinks that's too cold. That's not the temp when it goes in, but that's just to keep the vial of the vaccination authentic and to allow it to continue to work optimally. So we did have to go through drills to make sure we had the cold chain, we had the freezer, we had the ability to do this, we had the personnel, we had the location where it could be stored. All of the major facilities, including the Department of Health, have had to go through this little trial to make sure, hey, are we going to be able to handle this vaccine? And the good news is everybody did fine. And so, gosh, you are looking forward to your second shot. I am. Side effects and all. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> but, yeah, at, at least we go into 2021 with some feeling, at least of confidence, that we're, we're making some headway here. Absolutely. I'm honestly really confident that we've done such a great job here in the islands trying to keep the numbers of infected people low. But in addition, we set up the safe travel process so people can come here with a negative COVID test. We've really tried hard to make sure that testing is available in the community to those who feel they need it. All of the healthcare facilities have ramped up to be able to handle a potential surge. And the fact that we now have a vaccination, when I think back to how long it took for several other vaccines to be developed over time, it's pretty amazing. And it really is just a testament to the scientific community. When they all work together to say, let's go ahead and make this happen. Let's make it top priority. Let's put any other scientific research on the side for now. We must work together to solve this problem. It's been amazing what we can do when we cooperate and collectively work towards the same goal. All right. Well, Dr. Kozak, thank you very much and good luck with your second job. Thank you. the theme of COVID-19 vaccines this morning. It's not just a matter of having vaccines available. It's also the delivery, and that includes having a willing public to accept them. State officials have determined that that is going to require an ad campaign. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light's covering that story and joins us now. And Brittany, this starts with the idea that some folks are going to need a bit of convincing to get the vaccine. It's expected to be a bit of a challenge to persuade folks who are skeptical about the vaccine to actually roll up the sleeve for it. Uh, we have data here from November. The University of Hawaii's Public Policy Center found that just 44% of people they surveyed said plan to get the vaccine when it's their turn. That's quite a low percentage. So the health department here has their work cut out for them. 
It's a, a disturbingly low percentage, and it's also a decline from a previous survey, as, as you report from, uh, from August, down, down seven percentage points. But one of the questions here with, with any survey like this is sample size, and that seemed relatively small. Yes, there were a little over 600 people who were uh, participating in that survey. But there is a forthcoming survey, um, the results of a, of a survey done in mid-December, and that survey had nearly uh, 4,000 Hawaii residents who participated. So this is going to be a much larger sample size. It asked a lot of similar questions. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on the vaccine? Do you plan to get it? Do you not plan to get it? You know, if you're about it, why? Um, and this is a survey that's being done by a marketing agency enlisted by the state health department. Uh, it's called Olomana Loomis, and they are helping the DOH uh, kind of deliver its vaccine message to the public. So the beginning of their ad campaign, you know, of course, is going to start with this foundation of, okay, what are people thinking about the vaccine? What are the opinions that are out there? What are the worries? What are the concerns? Because the, the things that folks are, are worried about here in Hawaii, you know, they're going to be different than what people are thinking in, in New York, a place like New York where people have, you know, lost loved ones to, to the virus. Of course, that has happened here, too, but at, at a lesser rate. Um, so the concerns here are a little bit different, too. And uh, in a week or two, the results of this survey should be available. Are there any I don't know, insights um, or, or areas of, of inquiry about what those reasons are and, and how those can be addressed in terms of concerns. Uh, because, again, as you, as you mentioned, that's a very significantly high number here in Hawaii. Right. And so I, I think that's what this survey will, will start to tell us. But from what I understand, speaking with experts here locally, uh, the concerns really vary. Some people are um, simply alarmed at the speed at which the vaccine was uh, produced. Um, some people have questions. If I'm pregnant, if I'm breastfeeding, should I be taking this vaccine? Um, I think some people have a little bit of a wait-and-see approach. Uh, I, might, I might take it, but let me see what happens <laughs> with all the folks mm. who take it who are in line before me. Um, there have been focus groups as well that the Department of Health is coordinating. And um, what I'm told by Alan Tang, who is the head of Olamana Loomis, the marketing campaign, is that um, these focus groups are illuminating that people really, really want their freedoms back. They want their life back. They want to be able to, you know, gather at the beach on Sunday with family and hug friends and hug family and, and so that's a main concern on the minds of people. So, so just knowing this can help the Department of Health kind of guide the messaging. You know, just relatively briefly as a final question, the Department of Health actually does not have the greatest of track records when it comes to messaging campaigns. I'm thinking to the earlier campaigns about just awareness. Uh, is there confidence that this will be a different route? I think we'll have to see what happens. There definitely have been uh, some issues with communication during the COVID-19 process with the Department of Health. Um, you know, there, there was some misinformation that, that was coming out about just the number of contact tracers we have in the state uh, earlier in the summer. But the, um, you know, Department Director Libby Char has said that it's one of her priorities to increase transparency and, and, you know, improve public communications between uh, Hawaii residents and the department. So uh, this will definitely be an opportunity for the department to prove um, whether or not they're, they're taking those goals seriously. And we'll keep an eye on that. Thanks very much. Brittany, thanks very much. Brittany Light talking this morning about a planned ad campaign by the State Department of Health convincing people that getting the COVID-19 vaccine is a good idea. You can read her story at civilbeat.org.
One continuing piece of the COVID-19 story reaches into the country's prisons and jails and the vulnerability of both people who are incarcerated as well as those who work in those places. One in every five prisoners in the U.S. has had COVID-19, rates even higher here in Hawaii. That's according to a recent report by the Marshall Project and the Associated Press. And so far, one in five prisoners testing positive for the coronavirus. HPR's Kuvehi Hiraishi joining us now to look at how the pandemic's impacted our incarcerated population here in Hawaii. Aloha, Kuvehi. Aloha and good morning, everyone. One in three Hawaii inmates actually uh, has had COVID-19, according uh, to this report. And so far this year, a little more than 1,700 Hawaii inmates have tested positive for the coronavirus while behind bars. Another nearly 200 staff have, have also been infected. So when you pull the lens back in terms of the big picture, where are we right now in terms of the COVID-19 situation in jails and prisons here in, here in the state? Right now, yeah, the state uh, public safety department is managing about 300 active uh, inmate cases of COVID-19, uh, a majority of them at the Halaba Correctional Facility, right, our most recent uh, outbreak. But there are a couple of cases, positive cases, uh, remaining at the Vaiava Correctional Facility and also at the Saguero Correctional Facility in Eloy, Arizona. You know, and we have, again, this is a, it's a local story, but it's also a national story. And on the national front, we've, we've heard about the deadly outbreaks in, in jails and prisons. Um, in terms of the recovery rate or situation, most of the, those 1,700 Hawaii inmates that have been affected, as you mentioned, are, have most of them recovered at this point? Yes. Uh, a majority of the inmates uh, who have uh, gotten COVID-19 here in Hawaii uh, or uh, in that Arizona prison have recovered. As we know, the pandemic sort of hit Hawaii's correctional facilities in waves. We had that first big outbreak at the Oahu Correctional uh, Community Correctional Center, or C, followed by the Seguero outbreak uh, in Arizona and now uh, at Halava. We did lose a one uh, inmate, Hawaii inmate, who was being housed up uh, in Seguero uh, through COVID-19. So uh, there is a sort of extra or magnified look at some of our uh, prisoners who may be susceptible to diseases. Right now, we've got currently 10 inmates uh, in the hospital because of the coronavirus. You know, you talk about issues being highlighted by this. Another one here in Hawaii is the, the overcrowding of correctional facilities. This was an issue before COVID, um, early mm-hmm. on when social distancing, medical isolation, not possible. There were some release programs. But anything lasting in terms of changes that, uh, that may come on the overcrowding front? The pandemic is, is really prompting that conversation on how to cure this, this long-standing issue. The latest data from the Public Safety Department shows about 500 uh, more inmates are in uh, state facilities than the facilities are actually designed for. And so overcrowding is also renewing this interest in state plans to build a new jail uh, in Halava. Criminal Justice Advocate Kat Brady of the Community Alliance on Prisons uh, says she appreciates the the increased attention to the issue of overcrowding, but she's afraid a new jail isn't the answer. Uh, Here's Brady. We've been overcrowded for (laughs) decades. It's always been a problem, but it's never been a perceived problem of the legislature. And now all of a sudden it's a big problem because we need shovel-ready projects projects and i'm like we need projects that actually build community rather than tear community apart you know criminal justice reform advocates like brady say this you know they'd they'd rather see the state invest in in diversion programs to reduce that population rather than um, sort of having these uh, warehouses built Uh, but uh Another issue that I know uh, we've come across uh, and has been brought to light by the pandemic is that lack of, of re-entry support for, for inmates. Um, it's already gained a lot of traction among community groups uh, who have, I think there was an ad hoc re-entry hui that we had reported on that uh, made up mostly of criminal justice reform advocates who were able to secure things like housing and cell phones uh, for inmates who were being released, but it wasn't easy. Uh, Kahukaleo Patterson of the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation 
a center who's been working for years to help reintegrate inmates, uh, explains some of the hurdles in uh, reentry services under the pandemic. Number one, no housing, right? Number two, mm-hmm. no funding if there is housing, yeah? These are the top prison reform, criminal justice reform community advocates, and we had the hard, you know, this group of about 20 had the hardest time finding housing for one or two people. Reentry services uh, like uh, overcrowding, longstanding issues uh, for the State uh, Department of Public Safety. And it is, you know, as, as you go through this, there are so many issues that that it touches on that are related um and another is the the idea of the the oversight of prisons generally speaking here in hawaii right uh, this uh oversight commission a, a relatively new commission that finished its first year uh, oversight commission on hawaii's corruption systems uh, but it has uh, been severely hampered uh, by an inability to secure state funding for for a key uh, coordinator position. I should mention this is an all-volunteer uh, board, um, but uh, without that state funding, they haven't been able to really funnel uh, or investigate and follow up on a lot of the complaints they've been receiving throughout the pandemic. Uh, there is some hope uh, with the newly appointed head of public safety, uh, Max Otani, uh, he's come to really uh, understand the state's corrections ecosystem, if you will. He's served more than two decades with the Hawaii Paroling Authority. Um, as soon as he uh, went down to sit, uh, first appearance with the Oversight Commission, he was quick to address criticism uh, the agencies received over a lack of, of transparency in handling the pandemic. Yeah, I'll be open to the commission with any recommendations as far as how the department could be more transparent. Because we've been putting out you know, press releases prior to, on a daily basis, trying to update people what's going on. Um, but again, you know, it's a crisis that we're dealing with at this time. Well, all these issues we will be seeing uh, coming up in this next uh, legislative session, uh, whether through the report from the Oversight Commission uh, or through uh, legislators who are really um, I, on account of the pandemic, really paying attention to some of these these longstanding issues in, in the corruption system. There are so many threads to this story and threads that I know that you're going to be continuing to uh, to cover also on the prison front as well. Uh, HPR's uh, reporter Kuavehi Hiraishi, you can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org and uh, Kuavehi, mahalo for joining us this morning. Mahalo. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance EMBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. No matter what 2020 threw at us, HPR was here for you, bringing the news you needed to know when you needed to know it. It's a commitment every one of our journalists keeps day in and day out, whether it's a quiet year for news or very, very busy. This work is only possible with your support. So, as we wrap up the year, we ask you to help keep this work going into 2021. If you can, give to this nonprofit station today, and thanks. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. This is The Conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute, made with recordings from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. UH Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the cattle egret. Cattle egrets are those bright white birds with long yellow legs and bills. They're often seen along roadsides and fields. 
and especially loved to sit on the backs of horses and cows. They were introduced to Hawaii around 1961 to control flies, but are now widely found around all the main Hawaiian islands. Cattle egrets forage for just about any animal they can swallow, but are considered harmful as they can be flight hazards at airports and are nest predators for some native Hawaiian water birds. You can often hear the calls of cattle egrets as they fly overhead in flocks to their roosting areas at the end of each day. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. A few thoughts on the cattle egrets. Hawaii Public Radio's newest feature, Manu Minute, is now a weekly podcast. You can listen to the sounds of island songbirds and find out why many are threatened by their changing environment. Subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or through your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to help protect rare and endangered birds and plants at friendsofhakalauforest.org. There's a little bit of a music clue. In today's Backyard Quiz, we went trolling in the film vault to test your James Bond knowledge. The spy thriller Die Another Day includes a chase scene filmed in churning surf at the Maui break known as Jaws. Locals may remember that in December 2001, pro surfers Laird Hamilton, Dave Kalama, and Derek Dorner put on bulky wetsuits and exchanged surf lines in the large swell as choppers hovered overhead and cameras rolled. Lee Tamahori directed the flick, featuring one of author Ian Fleming's memorable villains, the British diamond mogul Gustav Graves. His superweapon, which he plotted to use to start war between North and South Korea, was powered by solar energy, a sustainable villain. His evil scheme was thwarted by the enigmatic 007, played by Pierce Brosnan, and Bond girl Jinx Johnson, portrayed by Halle Berry. Jinx got her nickname because she was born on Friday the 13th. Angela Thompson of Honolulu knew that and was quick to her phone with the answer. And that is today's quiz. If you have one you'd like to share, you can write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Twenty twenty has, of course, been a challenging year, a time of loss for many, a journey of sorts for all of us. Our political commentator Neil Milner joins us for the last time this year with a story of a different kind of journey. And Neil, this one not related to politics. Not related to politics at all, which is one of the reasons I picked it, but also because in some ways what you I don't want to say learn, but what you observe from this is very much related to the kinds of things that we go through in this year of COVID. It's really a story that appears in Bicycling Magazine. It's about two guys who did not know each other and, in fact, never really get to know each other, who decide to make journeys across Europe and Asia in different directions. Independently, they decided it. One, uh, Noel Cagle, decides to pedal from Portugal to originally Shanghai, and then he goes to a different part of China instead. And the other uh, is Leon uh, Whitley, an Englishman who, after a year teaching English in South Korea, decides that he's going to pedal home to England via China, which turns out to be not the case because he has to make a detour pretty much around China. The, the, the little bit of the story is that out of nowhere, literally nowhere, in the middle of a desert in Kazakhstan, in a very fraught part of the journal, on a straight, hot desert road that seems to go on forever, there is a little tea house, which is essentially a water stop and a little bit of a shelter. The two encounter each other. And the story is about that brief encounter, but also about which, what each one of these 
what the motivation was for each one of these guys. And before we go into that a little bit more, let me tell you what it wasn't. You know, nowadays when people make these kinds of journeys, they become very commercialized. One of the ways that adventurers pay for journeys is to have a sophisticated social media operation to get sponsors and so on. In this case, which is it was earlier, it was in 2013, one of them has a blog which is very primitive and no ads on it at all. And the other one, uh, Noel said he wasn't interested in any kind of commercial aspect at all. So they set off on their journeys. And that's where the story starts to become interesting because you pay attention to the sorts of ways that they look at risk and the way that they look at um, things like uh, risk and things like faith in others and things like dealing with uncertainty and embracing it, all of which struck me when I read it as things that we've all been wrestling with during this, uh, this period of time. Neither of them is serious uh, bicyclist. One's dad owns a bicycle shop in Wisconsin. That's no, he knew how to fix bikes. Uh, but he was not a serious, and he would do long-distance riding, but he was not a serious rider and a racer. Uh, Leon used to do long bike rides, but he couldn't even afford a decent bike for the 15,000-mile journey. And that's, that's the, the background. You know, you mentioned that, that reading this in the time of COVID makes it makes it different, and that that's true for everything in terms of re, even rereading uh, classics or favorites. Um, certain things take on different aspects because of the environment we're in right now. But you talk about the idea of risk and about mitigating risk and about how they looked at this and. Uh, one of them uh, being told the uh, the world is a dangerous place, and and the response of uh, you know if you listen to people you're, you're never going to go anywhere. Right. Yeah. He was. You know what's interesting about that's Noel. They, it, both of them are really high risk people who are willing to go into danger, but it's not machoized. It's not politicized. It's just that Noel says, yeah, you don't go anywhere if you think it's best to go out and explore and realize the world is a good place. That is, you start with the idea that it's a good place. And one of the reasons that he did, he said, look, you're riding a bike, you're vulnerable, and people sense that, and, and they want to help you. And those two things really drove him, really motivated him for, you know, about a ten to 15,000-mile journey. Uh, Leon is a little bit more spiritual. He talks about the Tao of travel. And one of the things that's so important about the Tao of travel is to embrace the things that can happen randomly to you. Um, he was very much interested in knowing that one day you have a good day, another day you have a bad day, and you never know. This is very different to me from the kind of let's call it the rationalization of risk and faith that is so much a part of our lives when we calculate uh, uh, what to do about COVID, whether to wear a mask or not wear a mask. This is a very different kind of explanation. You know, and you, you mentioned in terms of Leon and, and his uh, situation, part of that, of the whole idea, again, in a COVID context of, of dealing with uncertainty, um, and Leon really thriving on parts of that, of, uh, you know, enjoying the idea of when he started in the morning, he didn't know where he was going to wind up that night. Uh, you know, and you, you have different, uh, different tolerances, I guess, for, for uncertainty within different people. And that, that's another sort of aspect of this, that when you read this in, in the context of the times that we're in, Uncertainty is another thing that comes up. No, absolutely. Yeah, the funny story that he tells that Leon says, he embraces uncertainty. That's part of the Tao of travel. And he says, you never know what's going to happen. And he said, sometimes you have this great experience. He was wild camping one time in Southeast Asia, which he had to go through to make a 99-day detour around China. Um, and he's sleeping, and there's this beautiful flock of starlings flying around and just making a beautiful sight. And the next morning he wakes up and he sees that the starlings had pooed all over his equipment. <laughs> so, you know, he, in, in, in a sense, he, you know, in a sense, he, he, he saw it that way. You know, no one should think of these people as models for your own individual life. Um, 
But there, and, and, and you ought to read this thing just because it is a really good yarn. It's a good story. But still, there is something to learn about these very different approaches to, to what they were doing. Um, and and uh, maybe the most interesting part of the, of the article, the article hardly talks about this chance meeting in, uh, in the Kazakhstan desert at all, but it became very important. If you think of not seeing anybody for days and to think that one guy's coming from Europe or coming across Asia um, and he sees in this hot day this little shack way out in the desert and the other guy sees it coming from uh, coming east to west, sees it from the, the other place. Um, and they finally meet in, in the, this cabin and just, you know, kind of randomly. And one says to the other, what the hell are you doing here? And the other says, oh, what the hell are you doing here? But for one of them, it was formidable. And you talk about the karma of travel and uh, kind of randomness. The, uh, Leon, traveling from, traveling from east to west, uh, his bike was totally falling apart because the spokes were breaking. And Leon had been carrying a, uh, a, a, a spokes adjuster, which is like a little kind of small wrench, which he had no idea how to use. He was using it, he said, as an amulet. <laughs> and, but and, the, other, the other one had the knowledge but not the tools, right. and the one with the tools didn't have the knowledge, but meeting exactly together right. was yeah. able to, to come to that. Uh, that's part of that, that great yarn, as, as you describe, and, uh, and thanks for sharing that, Neil. Yeah, it's fine, yeah. Remember, the other thing, just as a reminder, there is no epiphany in these. Both of these guys, at the end of it, don't have an epiphany. Their life takes on some peculiar changes. They're not sure how much it really motivated them. They did because they did it because they wanted to do it. Doing it because they wanted to do it. Thanks very much. Talking with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and contributing editor. Today, taking a long view on the Dow of travel. We have to go for now, but up tomorrow, help us close out 2020 with some thoughts on wishes for 2021. We'll share some coming from some of our mayors and from you. You can leave us a voicemail with your hopes and aspirations for the new year, 808-792-8217. That's a number to leave us any other feedback. You can find our archive shows online and join us tomorrow for the conversation. I'm Bill Dorman. Thanks so much for joining us.